Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. Why do the really big failures or catastrophes happen, like the financial crashes or the big earthquakes? We as humans would like to think that for these really big failures, there must be really big causes. Some grand explanation for what went wrong. But what if there's no grand explanation? What if the explanation is one that we, as humans, are likely to feel very uncomfortable about? I recently read a book called Ubiquity by Mark Buchanan. And in this book, Buchanan poses the question of why catastrophes happen. The really big ones, as we said in the intro, the earthquakes, the financial crashes... But he also looks at the weirder catastrophes, like the outbreak of the First World War or the extinction of the dinosaurs. Now, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know I'm a little nuts about the causes of failures. And in this book, I found some really fascinating and new concepts that I'd never heard of before. And it's pretty stunning stuff, but I'll warn you, it's mind-bending stuff. Now, obviously, we're only going to cover some of the high points of the book. But if you're interested in learning a little bit more, then go and get your hands on the book. And I've provided a link in the show notes. Okay, so where do we start? Well, I think the best place to start is at a lecture that was being given in 1988. The lecturer was a geologist called Jakob Kagan, and he was giving a very general overview of earthquakes, because the lecture was for a non-specialist audience. Now, during this lecture, he was lamenting the fact that despite all the decades of research, he and all his colleagues had failed in being able to predict why large earthquakes occur. Now, this maybe isn't really that surprising because earthquakes are stunningly complicated things. If you're not very familiar with them, well, the earth is like a, a ball full of liquid or molten rock and it's surrounded by this thin solid layer called the crust. Now, this crust isn't just one solid piece of crust. It's made up of separate segments which are called plates. Now, as this molten rock continues to move inside the earth, this movement also wants to move around the plates. And because the plates want to move they rub up against one another where they meet. Now the problem is the joints between these plates are messy and they're jagged and the plates experience a lot of friction as they move against one another. And the stresses build up between these plates and eventually they build up so much that the plates suddenly slip. And when this happens, we end up with earthquakes. So all of this is really dependent on the actual joints between the plates and it's insanely complicated. So in the lecture, Yakov Kagan is talking about all this and he eventually says that the only hard and fast law they've come up with is the Gutenberg-Richter law. Now at this point in the talk, one of the members of the audience really started to pay some attention and then they started to get very excited about what they were hearing. Now this person was a guy by the name of Pierre Back, and he was based at the Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York State. Now, Pierre Back was a physicist, so he wasn't an expert on earthquakes. And to understand why he got so excited about the Gutenberg-Richter law, we need to have a quick chat about what this law actually is. And then once we've done that, we can come back and see why Pierre Back was so excited about it. So the Gutenberg-Richter law was put together in the 1950s by two seismologists, Bino Gutenberg and Charles Richter. And if that name sounds familiar, this is the same Richter who invented the Richter scale, which we use to measure earthquakes against now. Now, at the time... Both of them were working in the California Institute of Technology, and they were interested in examining if there was some sort of pattern in the size of typical earthquakes. In other words, was there a typical magnitude that earthquakes tended to occur at? So to investigate this, they collected all the information they could on earthquakes from all around the world. So what were they expecting? 
Well, we can only speculate really on what they were expecting, but if it turned out there was one typical size of earthquake, then when they collected all this earthquake data together, they might see some sort of normal distribution. So if you're not familiar with a normal distribution, it's one of those bell-shaped curves that we get in, in maths, with the typical earthquakes being clumped around, say, magnitude 3. And then the other earthquakes that were less frequent, you know, they did occur at higher magnitudes and, and lower magnitudes to form this, this bell-shaped curve. Or they might not see this at all. They might see a few bumps or humps on this graph, which would show that there were clumps of typical earthquake magnitudes. Anyway, at the end of the day, they expected they'd see some typical earthquake sizes. Except the data didn't show any of these patterns at all. It showed something very different. So if you imagine a graph with the magnitude of a quake along the vertical axis and the frequency of occurrence along the horizontal axis, you'll end up with a graph that was essentially a line that sloped downwards. Now, in simple terms, this just meant that the bigger the magnitude of the earthquake, the less frequently it occurred. And as the magnitude of the earthquake drops, the likelihood of their occurrence increases. So smaller quakes are, are more frequent. And I know this really only seems like it's saying that really big quakes are less likely than little quakes, and it, and it does say that, but it also says something really profound. Because this line graph follows a mathematical law called the power law. For example, the law tells us this. If earthquake A releases twice the energy as earthquake B, then earthquake A will happen four times less frequently. Now, the crazy thing is that this law works across a very wide range of quake magnitudes, from the biggest to the smallest. Take any magnitude of quake, double the magnitude of it, and it will be four times less likely to occur. And this means that there's no typical magnitude of an earthquake. They found no nice bell curve. Instead, they found this power law. Now, think about that for a moment, because it's kind of mad and it's kind of crazy. The physics underlying all this stuff is incredibly complex, as we've already been through. But, and this is a really big but, despite all this complexity all over the world, the earthquakes comply with this power law. Double the energy, and you're four times less likely to get the quake of that magnitude. So despite all the complications, there is something going on here behind the scenes. But what is it? And this is where we return to pair back the physicist who's listening to the earthquake lecture. And despite him not knowing about earthquakes, he literally gets a stab of recognition when he sees this power law, because he's seen it before in his research. Now, to understand where he's seen it before, we need to go back to the previous year, back to 1987. So he, along with his colleagues at the Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York State, were looking at a game called the Sandpile Game. And before you think it's strange that grown men would spend so much of their time looking at this, which really does appear to be a meaningless game, this is actually typical of the type of problem that some physicists like to examine, because sometimes these games can tell us some pretty profound truths about the world around us. And with this particular game, they struck gold. So with that disclaimer, here's the game they were playing. They wanted to know what happens if you're building a sandpile by dropping one grain at a time on a surface. So I warned you, it's a funny one. So imagine for a moment that you start dropping, one at a time and in random positions, grains of sand on a table and watch over a long time as this pile grows. Now as the pile grows and gets taller, there's an increased risk of one of the dropped grains of sand causing an avalanche. Now imagine one of these avalanches takes place. The pile will slump somehow and turn out to be shorter. Then continue dropping grains one at a time and the pile will start to grow again. And then you'll get another avalanche and the pile will sink lower again. 
And this was the problem that the physicists wanted to explore. What would a typical avalanche look like? How many grains would be involved in each of these typical avalanches? So to do all this, they programmed this sample model in a computer and used some very simple rules to model how the grains would topple. And they did thousands of these sandpile simulations. And it was the results that came out of all this that give Pierre back, sitting in the earthquake glacier where we began this story, his sense of déjà vu. Just as there was no typical magnitude for an earthquake, there was also no typical size for a sandpile avalanche. And there was more. When Pierback and his team started to look at the results from the simulations, they found that some avalanches evolved a few grains of sand, while others involved a few million grains. And this is where it starts to get nuts, which is why Pierback got so excited in the earthquake lecture. If you increase the amount of grains involved in an avalanche, that avalanche became less likely. The sand pile avalanches were following a power law, just like the earthquakes. Now, the numbers were a little different between the sand pile and the earthquake law. In the earthquakes, if you double the magnitude of the earthquake, you made it four times less likely, like we already said. But in the sand pile, if you double the number of grains involved in an avalanche, it becomes 2.14 times less likely. But the key thing here is that there was a power law in play in each case. The numbers aren't really that important. And this power law was at play in two very different systems. Think about that. One involves grains of sand falling, and the other involves movements in the Earth's crust. That's just mad, isn't it? And it set Pearback thinking, did this sort of behaviour happen in other things, not, not just in this sand pile? You know, it was clearly taking place with earthquakes, but was it happening in other places? Now, before we get to these other places, let's have a chat about what's actually happening in this sand pile game, because that becomes important later on. You know, why was the power law involved, and why was there no typical size of an avalanche? Okay, so the easiest way to think about it is like this. Imagine you're dropping grains of sand one by one. So slowly you're going to build up a carpet of grains on the table, and you'll have these little hills on this carpet. Some bits will be taller than the others. Now imagine we colour the low levels green, but as we get high spots, we start to colour them red. So near the start, we'll see that a lot, there's lots of green on the table. But as the game goes on, we'll see areas of red starting to appear and grow. So now imagine what happens if we let a grain fall. If it falls in a predominantly green area, there's no big deal. It'll just sit there in this flat spot and it'll do nothing. There'll be no avalanche. But now imagine a grain falls on one of the high areas, one of the red areas. Then we might just get an avalanche because the grain destabilises this red area. Now imagine this red area is isolated from the other areas. So after you get this initial avalanche, you probably won't get any more. But now imagine that this one red area is close to other red areas. The initial avalanche on the first red area might also set off an avalanche at another red area, and so on. So in other words, a single grain of sand falling if the sand pile has multiple red areas, can set up a large number of avalanches. And Mark Buchanan in his book describes the sand pile at this stage, where, when it's got lots of these red areas, as being in what he calls a critical state. In other words, in keeping with Buchanan's words, the sand pile, all on its own, has configured itself into a hypersensitive, unstable condition. All by itself. It got to be hypersensitive all by itself essentially in a natural way. Now, this is a bit of a slap in the face for physics, because we love to think about things being in equilibrium states. Not 
in critical states. So most of physics is about explaining equilibrium states. So think about a pot of cold water. If we add a cup of boiling water to this pot, then the pot as a whole wants to tend towards equilibrium. In other words, the heat will flow from the boiling water to the cooler water, and after a period of time, the temperature of all the water in the pot will be the same. So the cold water in the pot will have got warmer, and the boiling water will have cooled down to the same temperature. That's equilibrium, and it's a cornerstone of the sciences. But this critical state they found in the sand pile is about as far away from equilibrium as you can imagine. This is a, this is a system that's a non-equilibrium system. It's tending towards unpredictable behavior and sudden behavior. Now, the concept of a critical state has been around for more than a century, but it's always been seen as some sort of weird anomaly or as a freak show in physics. But now Pierback isn't so sure. Because after hearing the lecture on earthquakes, he realizes that it is all the hallmarks of his sand pile. The Earth's crust is behaving as if it's in a critical state, just waiting for one more grain of sand, or in its case, one more ground movement, to set in motion an avalanche that would release all the pent-up energy in the Earth's crust. Just like a single grain of sand releases all the energy in a slope in the sand pile and causes an avalanche. So now... Pureback thinks it may be more common than people think. In other words, this form of system behavior may be more ubiquitous than previously thought. Thus, the reason for the title of Buchanan's book, Ubiquity. And he was right. The critical state was more common than people thought. And this realization is considered the first real solid discovery of a whole new theory. A theory called complexity theory. Now, we're going to have a chat about complexity theory, and one of the more straightforward ways, at least for me, of trying to understand it, is to see what came before it. So how did scientists, particularly physicists, view the world before this complexity theory came along? So let's briefly go back to the very beginning, and then build up through the techniques these physicists used, and come back to complexity theory. So let's start easy. If we go back to the traditional view of physics, it's highly deterministic. And what we mean by this is that we can take a bunch of mathematical equations to describe a system, we can plug some numbers into these equations, and we can describe what's happening in the world. And just as importantly, we can predict what will happen in the future. And we can do this for, you know, for the really big systems and the really small systems. So, Take, for example, the planets in our solar system. We have all the equations to describe what's going on. So we can predict at any point where Mars or Venus or the Earth will be in space at any given time. So all just maths and all numbers and all very deterministic. And it's also reductionist. So what do we mean by reductionist? Well, what we mean by that is that we can break systems into little pieces and work out how each individual piece works. And then we can put it all back together again and predict the behaviour of the overall system because we know how each little part will behave. And this is how we work out how buildings work or planes fly in the sky. And it's really what we call a Newtonian world. And it's a cornerstone of science and it's very much a cornerstone of engineering. But that's not the whole story. In the late 1970s and 80s, another theory came on the scene. And I just love how this theory appears. So it's 1972, and a guy by the name of Edward Lorenz from MIT delivers a scientific paper with the weirdest name. He called it, and wait for it, quote, Does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? And 
This paper had a major impact because it was the birth of a new theory called chaos theory. Now Lorenz had started out his career as a meteorologist and he discovered chaos theory by accident. So what he and his team were doing was they were working on a weather forecasting program on a very early computer with the fantastic name of the Royal Might Be LGP-30. So all was good until the computer started spitting out weird results. On one simulation, or run, whatever your terminology is, it would predict a storm would take place over one location. And then in another run, it would predict clear skies over the same place. Now this shouldn't happen. As far as Lorenz was concerned, they were using the exact same input data for each run, which was weather data like barometric pressures at different locations, and they were using the exact same computer program. This was essentially a deterministic approach like we spoke about earlier, and they should have been getting the same answer for each computer run. But some of these runs weren't even close. So what the hell was going on? Well, Lorenz and his team spent weeks checking everything. The data was being entered correctly, the software was okay, the hardware was okay. So what was the reason they were getting these nutty results? Well, eventually they found the problem and Lorenz was in disbelief. Turned out that the input data for the program wasn't being entered exactly the same. It was so close, but not exact. One of the technicians was was entering the input data to three decimal places instead of four. So, for example, instead of entering a barometric pressure of, say, 29.5168, they were entering a pressure of 29.517. So that was it. 29.5168 versus 29.517. That's a minuscule difference. Want to be exact, the first number is 99.999% of the second number. It's almost 100% the same. Almost, but not quite. And this was what was making the difference. Even that smaller difference in input was enough to dramatically change the results. Now let's be careful here. We're not at all saying the system was unpredictable. We're instead saying that it was highly, highly sensitive to the inputs because it had non-linear behaviour. So once we got those inputs right, it was entirely predictable. But now suddenly we find that some systems aren't as, for want of a better word, robust as deterministic theory would have us believe. We'll always struggle to use them for prediction unless we can be sure we are inputting very precise measurements into our models. And there's a, there's a great analogy that I really love for chaos theory, and that is a ball in a pinball machine. So now once you start playing this pinball machine and you release this ball and start hitting it all over the place. How this ball travels around the machine is very, very sensitive to how hard it's hit and what it hits and what it bounces off. And these sort of subtleties are very difficult to take into account of in models. So unless you get them right, you will not be able to model it properly. And these are incredibly subtle. And this is what Lorenz found with his weather modelling slightly change some of the input parameters and you get a very different answer. With this sensitivity, very small differences in inputs can have big consequences. Just like a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil and ruffling the air can cause a tornado in Texas. And this is called the butterfly effect. But the important thing to remember here is that in these chaos systems, they're not unpredictable. They're just very difficult to predict. Which is why we end up with complexity theory. Because chaos theory actually falls short of explaining some systems. Because chaos theory doesn't deal with the issue of upheavability. Because chaos systems are still in equilibrium. 
but upheavability happens to systems that are out of equilibrium. And this is what we're going to talk about from here on. So forget about theory, it's complexity theory from here on. It's all about systems that are in the critical state. And in this critical state, and just to remind ourselves, we'll go back to a quote from Buchanan, where he states that the critical state is, quote, a special kind of organization characterized by a tendency towards strong and tumultuous changes. An organization that seems to arise naturally from diverse conditions when a system is pushed far away from equilibrium. And this is really the key, a system pushed far away from equilibrium. And these sort of systems, the ones that are pushed far away from equilibrium, they have this power law. And when they have this power law, they don't have a typical anything. Once you get into power laws and complexity, Pairback points out that terms like normal or typical or even terms like abnormal or exceptional are meaningless. There is no typical anything. Now, we'll talk in a moment about financial markets and complexity, but very quickly, what happened after Pierback attended this earthquake lecture where we started this whole story? Well, that story is fascinating, and if you want to read it, you'll have to go and get the book. But the short version is that he and his team would develop models of earthquakes. So, similar to the sand pile model. They were very simple, and they used computer models of blocks of wood and springs that I'm not going to go into. And... They, along with other teams over the years, replicated the power law for earthquakes. They showed that simple models could be used to illustrate the power law in earthquakes. And this is one key aspect of complexity theory. It's non-reductionist. It doesn't care about each part of the system. It only cares about what a system is doing as a whole. Now, here's the kicker. And it's a real kicker. Knowing about these power laws and how they apply to earthquakes doesn't actually make it any easier to predict earthquakes. And it gets worse. Complexity theory essentially suggests that trying to predict when and where the big earthquakes will occur in any way is impossible. Now think about it this way. Think about it in terms of the sand pile model. A grain of sand falls in the same way as a small slip may occur between two plates. Depending on the shape of the sand pile, this may or may not cause an avalanche. Likewise, depending on the position of the slip between the plates and the setup of the plates locally, this may or may not cause an earthquake. Now, in the case of the sand pile, if an avalanche occurs over high local areas, then a cascade of avalanches may be set off. Similarly, if there's a lot of energy stored between two plates, then many slips may occur. And if all this happens, you may get a really big avalanche in the sand pile model or a really big earthquake between the two plates. But think about this for a moment. And this is really an important takeaway. Each of these big events is caused by a single grain falling or a single slip along the plates. The magnitude of the ultimate effect bears no relationship at all to the initial cause. I put it another way, a big earthquake doesn't actually know it's a big earthquake when it starts. It just grows into a big earthquake as successive slips occur between plates in a cascade. These catastrophic earthquakes strike at a very real reason for no reason at all. There is no big cause, no big initiating event that kicks things off, no big set of easily identifiable circumstances that geophysicists can point and say, ah, there's all the telltale signs of an imminent large earthquake. It's too complex, just as the theory suggests. And it's not the initiating event that's important at all. The grain itself is no more important than any of the other grains that fell before it. In complexity theory, there are no grand causes. There are no major fingerprints for disaster. 
And this is really troubling because it messes with our need to understand causes of failure as humans. We want to believe that there are easily identifiable causes for huge events. It's really disturbing to think there might be not this order in the universe. It's disturbing to believe that some of the systems in our lives can be subject to sudden upheaval. And this upheavability and complexity are a lot more common than you might like to think. The world is less deterministic and, and less predictable than we'd like to believe. Now, bear in mind some systems are very predictable, and most of them are, and Newtonian and chaos theory will work well for them. But the important thing is the complexity theory helps us understand the systems that are not explained by Newtonian or chaos theory. And as the book progresses, Buchanan finds complexity and the critical state and the power law in a huge range of systems. He finds the power law appears when we examine the frequency and the intensity of wildfire fires in the US. He uses it to explain how certain species of animals can become extinct in history. And it's all just because of upheavability. And in particular, and in a really entertaining way, he talks about the extinction of the dinosaurs, which appears to have happened around 65 million years ago. So he talks about the meteor theory, which you're probably familiar with, which goes like this. 65 million years ago, a meteor struck the earth. And that threw dust up into the air, which blocked out the sun and killed the plants and killed the dinosaurs. And there's a lot of evidence for this theory and physical evidence for this theory. But Buchanan shows that perhaps a grand event like this meteor didn't need to happen at all. And he goes on and he shows how complexity theory mathematics illustrates that they could have died out anyway. They didn't need the meteor to kill them. Because if you go back to the sand pile analogy, for the dinosaurs there could have been one grain of sand that caused an avalanche which resulted in their extinction. You just have to go and mess with their food chain and they could have been in real trouble. The meteor wasn't needed. And then he goes on, you can even see this power law in the sizes of cities around the world. Now think about this for a moment. Think about all the variety of reasons people have to move to and from cities. But despite all this complexity, despite all this individual motivation individual people might have, a group of researchers studied city sizes in the US and then in Switzerland and then for the rest of the world. And they found that for every city that has a specific population size, there are four cities that have half that population size. Starting to sound familiar? You double the size of a city and you decrease the number of cities of that size by a factor of four. You double the size of an earthquake and you reduce its likelihood of occurring by a factor of four. And just like earthquake managers, this power law holds true for a broad range of city sizes. And this is for cities with nine million people all the way down to ones with 10,000 people. At all times, if you double the number of people in the city, you'll find four times their city with that population. Nature and humans really do follow these weird mathematical patterns. It's because of complexity. Now, I know, I know, I know, I know, you almost want to stop the podcast because it's mind-branding stuff and your head's probably exploding at this point. We're actually saying this. Actually saying that some of the most complex things in nature, like earthquakes, or in human behavior like how populations arrange themselves in cities, can be shown to follow this secret mathematical code like it's predestined. But it's not predestined. It just means that some systems in nature and in human nature are characterized by being in critical states, which means we can describe it with complexity theory. Now, that's the explanation, but I agree it's still absolutely mind-bending. And Buchanan even applies complexity theory to human history. He talks about the First World War and its origins, which I'm fascinated with at the moment because I'm currently listening to episodes of a podcast called Hardcore History, which is by a guy called Dan Carlin, and I think it's just one of the best podcasts out there at the moment. 
And in some of these episodes, Dan covers the First World War and its origins. And its origins have always been very controversial. The short version is that a Serbian national called Gavrilo Princi assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. And he killed Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie in the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo on the 28th of June 1914. Now this assassination set in motion a series of events that led to a world war. But how could one assassination cause a whole war? one of the most destructive catastrophes we've had in human history. Well, this has been debated over and over by historians, but Buchanan examines it from the perspective of complexity theory. What if the assassin principe is only a grain of sand, just like in our sand pile? What if the real problem wasn't principe, but that Europe was in interlocking treaties and because of its fears and paranoia, they were in a critical state? What if Europe was in a critical state? What if it was simply ripe for the grain of sand called Gavrilo Principe to drop and start an avalanche? And of course, here's the fascinating thing if you subscribe to this theory. I'm not saying I do, but it's fascinating to think about. If Principe was only a grain of sand, then he himself is unimportant. Because Europe was in a critical state, it could have been any grain falling in the right place that could have set off an avalanche. In other words, if it hadn't been Principe in the assassination, it probably would have been something else. It was the critical state that mattered, not the specific grain of sand. So to finish, we'll have a very quick chat about the economy and what complexity theory and the critical state can tell us about it. And I know this is a long podcast, but I've decided to be self-indulgent and I couldn't quite cut any of this out. Okay, so the economy. And let's start with how people thought about the economy. So one of the cornerstones of the economic theory, according to Buchanan, is the efficient market hypothesis. What this essentially means is that the market acts in its own self-interest. So if stock is undervalued, people will buy it because they can sell it later and make more money. But as this demand rises, the price also does too. So less people want to buy the stock and the market self-corrects. So in the efficient market, supply matches demand perfectly and prices stay at their proper values. In other words, they stay at values matched to their underlying fundamentals or underlying value. And this is how the market self-regulates. Now, if we want to put all that in the terms we've been using this podcast, we would say the market is in equilibrium. So, all well and good so far. But there's a problem. This sort of equilibrium doesn't account for huge changes in the stock market, particularly the crashes of 1929 and 1987. This book was written in 2000 before the 2007 financial crisis. But if we go back to 1987, for an example, you know, on one day in 1987, the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost more than 22%. So what makes this happen? Now, there's a lot of complicated stuff here. The key is that equilibrium-based approaches can't predict or account for these huge upheavals that occur in the market. And once I start using the word upheaval, you should be pretty sure that some complexity theory is on the way. So in 1998, as an example of some of the research that was going on, Gene Stanley of Boston University led a group to investigate the fluctuations in the Standard & Poor's 500 stock index. So this index is based on the share prices for 500 large corporations on the New York Stock Exchange. So understanding how these companies were doing was seen as a sort of benchmark for the economy as a whole. So this team studied prices recorded every 15 seconds over 13 years from 1984 to 1996. That's an astonishing 4.5 million pieces of data. Now when they did this, they found, yep, a power law. 
they found that if you double the value of a price change, that price change became 16 times less likely. In other words, big price changes were rare, as you sort of expect. But here we find the power law again. And remember that numbers themselves aren't that important. It's the presence of the power law that's important. Because this power law means, just like it did with the sand pile and with the earthquakes, that there's no such thing as a typical price change in the market. It says that price changes can be dramatic, you know, with the more dramatic ones being rarer. So here we see complexity at work. And remember, this is real. This is not modeling. This is real data. The market is telling us that there's a power law at play. These markets are not as stable as people think. So suddenly complexity theory, which can deal with the peoples, may now be in a position to explain why the big market crashes happen. So how does it do that? Well, to explain that, we need to look at work that was being undertaken by an economist from the University of Bonn in Germany, Thomas Lux, and an electrical engineer, yes, an electrical engineer, called Michel Marchassi from the University in Cagliari in Italy. And I apologise to everyone for my pronunciation of that. Now, they wanted to model the economy, taking into account how people influence one another. Now, this is really different to traditional economic models because they're based on the assumption that each participant in the market could you know, cold and dispassionately assess the wisdom of making a trade and then act on that wisdom. Now, this concept is known as the rational agent, and it's critical to the orthodox economic theory. But what Lux and Machassi wanted to do was turn all of this on its head. They wanted to model what happens when you allow one person to affect another person. And this is how they did it in their model. They took one type of stock and they took a thousand traders. And they separated these traders into three types of groups. Now remember, these traders are participants. They're not real. They're being modeled by the computer. The first group were called the fundamentalists. Now these are the people who assess the value of a stock and buy it if it's undervalued and sell it if it's overvalued. So this is your classic orthodox model of a trader. The second group are the optimists, and these guys believe that market prices are going up and they want to buy and invest. The third group are the pessimists, and these believe that the market is going down and they want to sell their stocks and cut their losses. Now, the key difference between these groups is as follows. You know, the fundamentalists are behaving like economists expect people to behave. They assess the value of the stock dispassionately. The last two groups, though, the optimists and the pessimists, are not interested in fundamentals. They're not interested in the actual value of the stock. They're essentially speculating on trends in the market. Or, more importantly, they're speculating what they think are trends in the market. So how did Lux and Marchassi structure the game? Well, they did it like this in their computer models. And remember, these are not real people. They're models of people who have been programmed how to behave. So the program assumed that the stock had some authentic value. And then the program allowed it to fluctuate gently around this value. And they, they did it really gently. Then the fundamentalists would buy stock when it was undervalued and sell it when it was overvalued based on the authentic value of the stock. The program then made the optimists and pessimists ignore the authentic value and only buy or sell when trends appeared. And of course, these trends had no relationship to the authentic value of the stock. So then with all this considered, the program runs and works out the market price of the stock over time with respect to supply and demand. So for example, all three groups want to buy or sell stocks and the greater the demand for the stock, the higher the price. The greater the supply of the stock, the lower the price. So all pretty standard so far. But this is the really cool bit. Luxembourg Chassis didn't fix the number of fundamentalists, optimists or pessimists. They allowed the number in each group fluctuate. 
In other words, even pessimists can become optimists for a while if the market is really on the rise. And at the same time, if the market is climbing really well, even a fundamentalist would dispense with objective trading and turn into an optimist just to be able to cash in. And to achieve all this, they programmed the game so that each trader had a small chance they would change their mind, change their behavior. For example, Buchanan says that if there are more optimists in the market, the prevailing mood will be that the market is going to rise. And at that point, other pessimists may soon become optimists. And vice versa, if a market is falling, optimists will slowly start turning into pessimists. And then with all this, they set the model running and the results are fantastic. They actually show how the market works. The stock due to the optimist and the pessimist behavior can fluctuate. Usually there can be huge booms and there can be huge busts. And these results match the sort of trends you see in the real market. And they also found the same power law in the game that was evident in the real market data. Now think about this, and it really will start to blow your mind. These booms or busts apparently started out of nowhere and for no reason. Remember, there's no real significant outside influences on this model, but it's still incredibly volatile. And what this means is that because one person can influence another, then a tiny imbalance, you know, say towards, for example, pessimism, that can crash the market. So just like in our sand pile game, one grain of sand can fall and destabilize or influence another grain and cause an avalanche. So in the economic model, a tiny cause can have a huge effect. A tiny cause can cause huge upheavability. So this market is in a critical state. And it's not the tiny change in the market that's important. No more than it was the grain of sand in the sand pile or the split slip that matters in the earthquake. It's the critical state of all these systems that makes them so vulnerable to upheaval. And of course, this all really means that actually predicting what a market will do in any way is, is impossible, just like predicting earthquakes may be impossible too. All we can really say is that the really big fluctuations are less likely than others. And we can say this because of the power law. But we can also say that the great crashes, for whatever other causal reasons we want to give them, are not abnormal. And they're not unexpected. They are simply the ordinary, albeit unlikely, events that happen in systems that operate in a critical state. So, while we as humans crave the narrative structure of cause and effect, particularly for catastrophic events, complexity theory teaches us that there are some systems where this sort of deterministic approach just, you know, it doesn't work. Even chaos theory doesn't work. There are some catastrophes where causes are not due to some grand event, you know, some big smoking gun. These causes are simply due to tiny events like grains of sand meeting self-generating systems that work in a critical state. And the rest is just statistics. One way to think of it is that some catastrophes actually have no causes, or at least no abnormal ones, in some systems, but by no means all systems. And we need to stress that the cause of the terrible, abnormal, unexpected events are no more noteworthy than the cause of the events we ignore. It's just complexity at work. And I'm going to end now. And I'm going to end with a quote from Mark Buchanan from his book, where he sums up how we as humans understand these complex systems. You know, these these great tidal waves that seem to rise up every now and again. You know, the earthquakes and the wars and the great upheavals. He says, quote, It will make no one feel any safer or happier to realise that these waves may be inevitable. But it is at least a step toward greater understanding to recognise that the tumultuous course of humanity need not be the product of some deeply malignant human madness, but of ordinary human nature and simple mathematics. 